Hi, it's Pete Price, and my podcast this week is in two parts. Part one of Mrs. Butler's eldest son, Billy Butler. I am delighted that I spent so much time with Billy. Sit back, relax, enjoy Billy Butler with Pete Price. Liverpool Live. 60 years in the industry, 50 years in radio. Mrs. Butler's eldest, ladies and gentlemen, Billy Butler. I am thrilled and delighted you've come in tonight, more than you'll ever know. Well, thank you, Pete. You flattered me. I'm flattered that you came in because you are a piece of history in Liverpool, which is great. We could talk forever. I haven't got... I've got... Four Clark questions, four questions, that's all I've got. Because we know each other. The first time I ever got to know who Billy Butler was, I was working at the cabin club, I was the chef, they wanted a DJ, but nobody knew what was a DJ was. And I said, well, there's a DJ works at the Mardi Gras called Billy Butler. And that was the first time I ever heard your name. Billy, where did it start? Well, that's bad, because I'd already done years at the cavern before oh. the Mardi that yeah, but I, yeah, but I didn't know you from that. I just knew the bands. I just, I did, to me, years ago, you didn't dance to records. You danced to the live music and then walked off when the records were on. That's that's how I saw it. And I remember going on a Wednesday and going to the Cavern and seeing the Big Three, who are my favourite band, and Jerry and everything. So I didn't. I honestly didn't know you till then. So I was only at school. I probably didn't know you at the um, cabin because it was the hardest club to get into in town. <laughs> it really was. It, it was legendary, the fact that it was hard to... It was so legendary, I never tried to get in. Um, you know, because you get knocked back, you feel ashamed, so I never tried to get in. Mrs Windsor turned the Beatles down because she said the hair was too long. She would not let the Beatles in. Billy, how did it start? Well, basically, you, you, I could say it started from an advert in the disc and music echo. In, sorry, in the disc, you know, the disc, the magazine used to come on on Friday. And there was a little advert in there saying that ITV are planning a new show uh, with established stars introducing stars on the way up. And part of this show, they've got a teenage panel who will be judging hit records. So I wrote off for an audition. And I got a letter back about uh, four weeks, five weeks later to go for an audition in Manchester, in Didsbury, where Top of the Pop Studio used to be shot. So I went there for an audition, and it was all fellas like me getting up there, sitting on a panel of three people, commenting on records, and, you know, getting off. And I'm watching all these people, I'm thinking, because when I went in, I thought, well, I, I know a lot about music, so it'll be all right. And then I heard all these people who know just as much as me. So I thought, it's going to have to be a bit different, I'm going to have to sell this rather than that. So I started to, um, so I remember the first record, it was an American dance, I forget what it was, but it was an American dance by Chubby Checker, and it involved throwing your partner over your shoulder. You see, and I said, I like this record very much, and I like the lyrics, because you throw, your, you, you throw somebody over your shoulder. I must practice this dance with my mother-in-law, <laughs> you see. So I, I did it like that, you know, and then I heard nothing. Right, and I used to watch, when, when Lucky Star started, I used to watch it every week, and I used to see the teenage panel say, I was as good as him, I was as good as him, my aunt, my aunt. And then suddenly I got a letter saying, come down to Birmingham uh, Sunday afternoon, and uh, we record it for transmission the next Saturday. So I went down, did it, and what I did, I took a big cigar with me from the Wizard's Den, right? And Jimmy Savile was big at the time, excuse me, and uh, when my turn came to judge a record on the telly, I pulled out this big cigar and said, this is a great record, this, I think we should be playing this, you know. 
I got told off after this, you know, you, you can't be, you're there to judge records, not to entertain people. And then two weeks later, I got a letter saying, can you come on again? And that went on for 16 weeks with the same panel. But I never knew when I'd recorded the show Sunday whether I was on the next week. They never said you're on next week. You just got a letter in the week saying, get the train down again, here's your expenses, three quid, here's your fee, five quid. And that was it. And so because of that, I got involved in music and uh, I joined a group called The Hangmen. And we used to play places like the uh, the pub behind, the pub opposite the uh, stadium, the Oddford Club in Bootle. And, and we were pretty crap, I must admit. So I was with the hangmen. And then Janice Nichols got in touch with me. She was the girl who said, I'd give it five. Right. So I arranged for her to come to Liverpool. And I did a song with her at the Hollyoak and at the Blair Hall and at another club uh, for Wally Hill Promotions. And uh, the Maisie Beats backed me on it. And we got such a good reaction. But when she went back home, the Maisie Beats said, would you like to sing with us for a while? So I joined the Maisie Beats for a while. And that was after about three or four weeks doing gigs with them. And I left them because I realised they were never going to be a success. <coughs> they were after I left. Um, and I formed my own band, The Tuxedos. And we did The Cavern and places like that. Let me stop you there. Let's go back to the telly. I'll tell you why I want to stay... <coughs> excuse me, I want to stay with the telly. is because in those days, telly was huge. Oh, yeah. It's not now watered down with a million shows. What was the reaction of the people to you? Because it was a different world in television. Well, there's no reaction in the echo. You know, the fact that I was on that net really? network... Really? I got a little piece in George Harrison's Over the Mersey Wall column. The cheeky lad from uh, Thank You Lucky Stars is Billy Butler from 52 Great Rock Seats, and that was that. But uh, the, a lot of reaction I used to get was you, you go into, I'd go into a shop and it, it, it was some people would say, oh, you're the fellow off the television, aren't you? You make a show in Liverpool, you do. Oh. <laughs> I did. I used to get lots of that. You know, and lots of other people saying what's it like on telly and give us your autograph and all that. But as I said, that, now and then, you know, you'd make a show in Liverpool, you that's, ama that's amazing, that, because I would have thought in those days they would have been proud and, and also it was revolutionary television. It was. Explain what the show was about for the younger people who are listening now who won't know the well, show. You'd have a, it was on a Saturday night uh, at um, 6 o'clock, right through till 7 o'clock, and it basically involved a, a, a well-known artist, let's say, um, let's say, Engelbert Humperdinck, say. He comes on, sings his record, then he says, I'd like to introduce... Uh, uh, this young man who I think is going to be a big star so they, they, they uh, I mean the, the other person always had a record contract anyway but it was it was a way of broadcasting new acts uh, presented by well known acts and then our segment in the middle was called Spinner Disc Brian Matthew was the uh, host of that show Brian Matthew and we had a guest DJ on Spinner Disc so to be a guest DJ to be Janice from Wensbury, in, the girl who said I'd give it five, me in the middle, and another girl from, um, I think it was from Staffordshire or something. And they played a minute or so of a record, and we had to, we had to make comments on the record, say it would be a hit or a miss, give it marks out of five, which is why Janice became very famous for I'd give it five, you know. And at the end of the three records, whatever got the most points was the winner. So it was simple as that. Yeah, we had DJs yeah. on, like uh, we had Bob Waller was on. Well, well, I was on there. Uh, some people who you would, would never imagine with disc jockeys were on as well, who did Radio Luxembourg, you know. Uh, but we had him and we had Simon D on. We, we had all, all big-name radio DJs on but as the guest DJ. When Let Bob Wool was on, he was terrified. Yeah. 
because Bob Bob never liked doing live television. He had a wonderful phrase. He said he used to say, "I'm not friends with the lens." <laughs> he had a wonderful turn of phrase, Bob, and I'm I more or less nursed him throughout that day because he was terrified. If you just join me, I've got Billy Butler with me. Uh, Sixty years in the industry, fifty years on radio. Billy, let's go back even further. How did you become a DJ? How did you start? Did you ever have a proper job? Oh yeah, I used to work in uh, Anglo overseas, which is a. Uh, um, which was, no, I first worked in Perry News in Hatton Gardens. I worked there for a, quite a few, well, I think a year and a half, and I left there because I got called pension, uh, 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 pension assistant, and uh, I was taken to court for stealing the assistant value, one, one, one and nine or something like that. Right. And it, it was funny, you know, because before me there was a, there was a guy who'd, who'd stolen a lorry load of bananas or something like that. And then the one after him had stolen a pile of copper pipe. And then I come up for stealing a system worth £3.50 from Perry News. And the judge said, there's far too much of this thieving going on. He just had two fellas who used this, and he picked me to say, there's far too much of this. Anyway, he fined me £5. £5? Yeah. And I lost my job. And you lost your job. I lost my job, yeah. So... In those days... A five pound was a bell lock, because oh, I, I, I was only getting yeah. two pound one yeah. and eleven a, a week. A great deal of money. Now, before you became a DJ, were you collecting records? Uh, well, I couldn't really afford to collect records. I bought the odd one, you know, say we had one or two, and I hadn't started going to the markets or anything then, so uh, I couldn't really afford to be going out, splashing out on music, all that. Uh, but um, basically, I get the music papers... To keep to keep up with everything about music that I could, and it was only when I was playing football for the Mersey Beat Eleven, and uh, I was in the tuxedos at the same time, and I was in the Mersey Beat Eleven, you know, with people like Earl Preston, Rory Storm, and all the Mersey Beat guys, you know. And uh, Bob Wallace said to me at half time, he said, "Billy he said, would you commentate on the second half? I don't know much about football." He said, after watching you, you don't either. So, <laughs> so would, would you like to commentate on the second half? So I commentated on the second half, and then Bob called me over. This would be 1963, I think. And Bob called me over and said, uh, Mr. Butler, he said, uh, he said, uh, you're friends with the mic. He said, how would you like to come down and work at the cavern? He said, because I've got so much on with the Beatles and everybody that uh, I need somebody to stand in for me. So I said, okay, fine, yeah. So I went down there. This would be January 1964. I did, did a session, a lunchtime session, and he was very happy with that. I said, fine, you can start here. Do, you do um, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday afternoon, and all night sessions of a Saturday. Wow. But I used his records, so I didn't so have to buy any. So you used yeah. his records. And then, of course, with, with getting £3 a week from the cavern, that gave me, I could go out and buy records then as well for myself. When you first started in the cavern with his records, were you a personality DJ or was it all about the music? Well, you could say both really. I was a personality DJ in the way I projected them, you know. But they, don't forget I'm in the band room with the cavern, so they can't see me. So it's hard to become a personality DJ and not look at it. But I used to sell them. I'd throw a quip in about it, you know. You know, um, like I'd say, here's PJ Proby, you know, and after what's happened to him this week, you realise that his first three records were Hold Me Together somewhere, <laughs> which they were, you know what I mean? So I'd, I'd put in things like that, and I'd, I'd do dedications for people in the audience sending them up, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, 
Work in the cavern. I mean, I went there as I was at school. We used to sag off on a Wednesday. That was our big day to go to Wednesday afternoon uh, to see the escorts and the big three and yeah. as a few bands. It's people say to me, and they must say to you a million times, you are so lucky to have lived through those days. Oh, yeah, but describe the cavern because it was a hole. It was nothing special. Yeah, but you never thought about no. that. It never occurred no. to you. You know, people always talk about the smell at the cavern. Yeah. I could never imagine it. There was a little bit... When they cleaned it, you could smell something because of these sanitizers they were putting down. But I never thought it smelled damp or anything like that. You know, so and I did most of my work in the band room. And then, of course, I'd mingle with the customers and go out and watch the group myself. And, of course, they didn't sell any drink. So you, we could only have, uh, we could only have uh, black currant juice and sandwiches and stuff like yeah. that. And so you, you got to know the people who were in the audience, so you found out what they liked. So you go back in the band room, you know, and then say, this is for so-and-so, dedicated to so-and-so. And you'd sell it that way as well. Yeah. And, of course, you'd become friends with the bands as well. And, of course, the entrance would never in a million years have been allowed in this day and age with health and safety because it was one way in and one way out, wasn't it? Yeah, and there was a steep one way in. Oh. It was down, down, down the stairs. Yeah. Of course, when the cavern reopened and they had alterations, they had uh, you could get in a little further, a bit further down from the, the original entrance. Yeah. There was a back alleyway. You could go down the back alleyway and up the stairs, and this is the band room which had been made which had been made larger by then. Because the original band room, sometimes you'd have an all night session with six bands on, and you'd have about twenty seven people in the band room. You could hardly move. Stay but it with, all added yeah, to the atmosphere. Yeah. Staying with the cavern, uh, and we will stay with the cavern on this because it, 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 it's important. You've always been passionate about Liverpool, and nobody can ever, ever take you uh, that, that away from you. But when they destroyed the cavern and closed it down and then altered it for the uh, railway or whatever they were mm -hmm. doing, you must have been incensed. Well, the thing was, Peter... Um, Originally, originally, before it closed down, I'm doing a Sunday night session. Uh, the Hideaways were on and quite a few other bands. I think the Escorts were on that night, actually. And Ray McFall got me uh, as it was go coming out the band room. He said, Billy, he said, Billy, this is our last session. We're closing after tonight. And that was the first I'd heard of it. The first anybody had heard of it. The groups didn't know or nothing. So I said to Chris Wharton, who was with at the time, who was doing the odd gig with, I said, let's go around the clubs in town. We went to Peppermint Lounge. We went to the, uh, the, the Way Down. We went to the In Place. And we told everybody the cavern's closing tonight. This is your last chance. Come down. Because we're going to stay open all night. We weren't supposed to stay open, but we decided we we're going to stay open all night. We told the groups they decided to. So we got in the band room, and then I said, OK, the bailiffs are coming in. Let's barricade the stairs. So we, we took all the chairs and, you know, all them 69 steps or whatever they were. We blockaded it. And we, we stayed that way till, I think it was 12 noon. Now, I was working in, I, I used to work over lunchtime for a American Express. So I went down the back alley, climbed over the gates, even though we had the keys. I climbed over so I wouldn't have to open it. Got back down, went into American Express, told them about all the work I'd done this morning, that morning down at the docks. I've done that. This car goes gone there. This car goes <laughs> done there. I've been on the phone to the counter office and they told me. Went back to the cavern and they were all in. You know, somebody had got to let them in down the back alley. And then it, uh, after that, um, it shut. No, yeah, that was the closing date. But um, 
and get ahead of myself. The thing was, when an event, it reopened then, of course, it reopened, we had a big reopening session with Harold Wilson and all them. And I stayed, I stayed with them till about 1970, and then we, I did the Mardi and the places in Wigan and Warrington and places like that. But when the decision came to, 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 to knock it down, when they decided to knock it down, there was never a protest. I mean, when it was first closed, when it first closed after the barricade and all that, mm-hmm. I led a procession through town and it was on the telly and it was in the echo about keeping the cavern open, you see. And that was a protest. But when it actually got filled in, because it never got knocked down, when it got filled in, there was no protest in the echo. There was no protest anywhere because we all thought at that time it, it's had its day. You know, it's done it, it's lived it, it came back into vogue, it didn't work. It wasn't doing well when it was when, when it was closed, you know. We thought, well, that's it. You know, it's yeah. it's, it's it's all over. There's no protest. That's what people always say. Oh, why did the council allow it? You know, it's, it's what a what a mistake. With hindsight, they're saying that, but at the time, we all thought, well, you know, it's served its purpose, and that's that. When did you realise you could make a living out of being a DJ? Uh, well, as soon as it started, because I was only on about £2 odd a week, and I was getting £3 at the cavern for doing five days. So, well, you know, that, that, that was a big boost at the time. Right. And then when I finished at the cavern, I started doing other clubs around the area as well. And sometimes we'd do a club and we'd take the door. That's when I realised if you self-promote, you can make yeah. a few more bar of that as well. Yeah. And I was still working. I was, I, I was still working till 1971. You know, I, I, I was I was I was DJing. So, no, I was still working until nineteen seventy. I started radio seventy one. The first two years, I was still working at American Express. I was doing half eight till uh, you know half eight till quarter past eleven. And weird times the BBC had. So when I was supposed to be in work down the docks, I was actually on the radio live. Mm-hmm. But I used to tell them at American Express it was recorded, <laughs> so I couldn't mention the weather or stuff like that. You see. <laughs> So you kept your job going. We'll talk about radio in a minute. Let's talk about your passion for records. There was the most amazing record shop in Liverpool called NEMS, and it was tragic when they closed it down because they went to white goods around the country. Now, I was told, and you'll be able to tell me if this is true or not, but I was told they were making something like £28,000 a week on records alone all those years ago. Where did your passion for music come and your knowledge? Well, it came from listening to Radio Luxembourg, you know, and, and AFN and stations like that, and, and liking music and wanting to have it myself. I want to, instead of listening to it, I wanted to have the record in possession of my own. So I started searching out record shops because you can guarantee there'd be a box there with records they hadn't sold. Yeah. So I started building my collection on that. And without being begetted, I've always had a, a good feel for music. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've always had a good idea. This, this, this could be worth keeping for the future. You know what I mean? And then, of course, when, when, as you well know, uh, when, it, when it became residents at the Cavern and, and that got round, the record company started sending me records, you see, which, which was a big boon as well, you see, because you, you get them in advance of everybody else. So I could go down the Cavern and say, here's the new one from so-and-so, and it's not out till the week after next. It was a big plus, that kind of thing, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? So that was a really big help, that was, because I could save money that way as well. How did you get into radio? Well, basically, I was, I was working at the Mardi Gras. I was working at the Mardi Gras in 1971. Uh, and we were actually booking acts into there as well, me and Chris Wharton. Uh, in fact, we were running the place from, from uh, the late, late, late 70, 
uh, through to it closed remind, in 72. Remind everybody where the Mardi was. Mardi was in Mount Pleasant, basically just around the corner from where the 051 is. Yeah. And um, I, I was working there midweek and at the cavern of a weekend. And Tony Wolf came in, who was a producer with BBC Radio Merseyside. And I'm in the record booth, and he said, uh, Billy he said, can I have a word with you? I said, yeah, he said. Billy said, uh, we've, got a, we've got a slot going of a Saturday morning. He said, because Kenny Everett's on holiday, and uh, the guy who's filling in we're not very happy with. Do you think you could do a couple of Saturday mornings? No, I'd never done radio. Yeah, yeah. But I said to him, <laughs> yeah, fine, great. So he said, okay, just come down. Uh, 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 I said, can I bring me own records? He said, yeah, just bring your own stuff. That's what the BBC in them days, you know, 1971, bring your own stuff. So I brought my own stuff, and I did about six weeks of a Saturday morning. And that finished, and uh, Vic Marmy was in charge then, Vic Marmy, and he took me upstairs and he said, uh, there's a lot of interest in you. I found out later that most of the staff didn't like me because they thought I was a bit common for BBC radio. But Vic Marmy said, you've started getting a, a large amount of mail. He said, so obviously, um, people like you. He said, so um, we'd, we'd like you to do three mornings a week, if that's possible, Monday, Wednesday and Friday. I said, yeah, that's great. So I started doing Monday, Wednesday and Friday. Still working as well, still working on American Express. And um, I was also doing the lunchtime session to the cavern when I was working as well. They didn't know I'd go to work at 12 o'clock, sign on and say, I'm going down to Huskerson Dock now. Go to the cavern, did an hour there and go to Huskerson Dock. You know, so the money was coming in there. Not all that much, but it was more than I was earning. So I did the shows, did the, did the Monday, Wednesday, Wednesday and Friday, um, stood in for the country show as well, and Radio City came looking for me, you see. So I went to, meet, I went to have a meeting with um, Terry Smith and with um, the lady who was in charge as well. I forget her name, you might know it. There was a very well-known lady. She's there now. She was at the funeral. And... Uh, they took me over and they said, we'd like, we'd like you to come over to Radio City. Was it Gillian Reynolds? Gillian Reynolds is the one. We'd like you to come over to Radio City. And I said, oh, great. And it, it, did, it did excite me. I thought, well, it's because they were a big station. You know what I mean? They hadn't started, but you could see they had plans. You know what I mean? So I said, okay, yeah. So I went over and had discussions with them, had more discussions with them. And it turned out that, that I'd had a letter from Radio Merseyside, which said, um, we'd like to sign you for another year. You know, and I put on it, this is probably the best move you could ever make, you know, and sent it back. And I never realised that that constituted a contract. Oh, wow. You see? Oh, so, wow. So when I said I was going to leave, they said you can't. So when I told Terry Smith and them, he said, <coughs> don't worry, we, we, we'll get a lawyer to fight that. So don't worry about it. But they would not tell me what time they were going to put me on, you see? And without speaking ill of the dead, I, I, I didn't really trust the people at Radio City. Yeah, yeah. I had this feeling inside that what they're going to do, they're going to take me off the mornings just to get rid of me, you know, and stick me on late at night or something. Just to get the opposition out of the exactly. way. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I went up to see Vic Marmy and I, he said, what's happening, Billy? What can we do for you? I said, I'll tell you what, Vic, if you put me on five days a week so I can pack my job in, I said, I'll, 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 I'll tell the city where to go and I'll stay with you. And he said, That'll do us. And that was it till 1978. That would be about 74, wouldn't it? Because City are 40 odd years old, uh, 47 years old. And uh, so that was that. And then he came after me again in 78. But by that time, I'd been with the BBC for seven years. 
And I didn't see what more I could do because it never had many outlets there as it became later. Is that why you felt you needed to move on? Yeah, because <laughs> I found City exciting. They were doing these outdoor shows. They were going around doing presentations everywhere. And I thought, that's exciting radio. I like that. So I went over there and I think, uh, I think Norm Thomas did uh, six till ten. I did ten till one. And Dave Lincoln did one to four, I think it was. That was the line up then. And I stayed with them for three years. And then my contract came up again. And um, during that time, the, the new boss at Radio Merseyside came back to see me and he said, uh, any chance you'd be coming back? I said, well, I don't know, never considered it, really. You know, and by that time, I'd started working with Wally. Because originally when I went there, I'd never worked with Wally. Wally produced Wally me. Wally was a producer, wasn't he? He produced Radio me. City. And Wally used to get in trouble, because I'd say to Wally, come in the studio and I'll have a chat. And he'd come in and he'd get told off, you know, the producers don't talk on air. And he said, well, he keeps bringing me in. So Wally told me I can't come in anymore. I said, listen, my figures are great. You keep coming in. So that's how the relationship was. What made you feel that about Wally? Why Wally of all the people? I think what it was, there was so much about him you could skit at. You know what I mean? I could poke fun him. I'd give him a stew, he took it, great. You know, because as you know, he'd have a shirt open, he'd have a medallion on, you know, and he'd, he'd dress what he thought was current. So we clicked, you know what I mean? Because you can't have a relationship where, where there's two of you in charge. There's always to be one of the person in charge. And he was always quick to relax. And well, what a lot of producers don't have today, Wally would come up with an idea. He'd say, Billy, here's what we're going to do next week. I've got an And so a producer would be telling the DJ... A, 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 a new spotted plan. You don't do that now. You just answer the phone. You know what I mean? So that's how it worked. So I agreed to go back to Radio Merseyside, mainly because they made me a really good offer. And when I told City, Terry Smith refused to match it. So I said, OK, that's it, I'm leaving, you know. And then the day before I left, um, Roger Wilkes called me into his office and he said, listen, we don't want to lose you. How much is it you get and how much you want? I said, I've already committed myself. You know, that's that. So that was 78, end of 78. So I went back to Merseyside in 79. And uh, originally, the... Um, no, I, I'm at the wrong place. I went to City. Yeah, went to City in 79, sorry. Yeah, I went to City in 79. Stayed at Merseyside. But Wally didn't come with me straight away. Um, when I went back to Merseyside in... Uh, I think I'm getting back... 79... I left I Merseyside. You, I think you're great right. with all the day. How many times did you work at City? 83, I went back to Merseyside. Yeah. So I was at City, 79 yeah. to 82. How well, many times did you work at Merseyside? Was it four, two it, each? No, it was, it was 71 to 78 Merseyside. 79 to 83 City. 84 to 95 Merseyside. And 95 to 2000 at... So four uh, times. Yeah, and then back to Merseyside. Four times, amazing. Uh, Billy, um, when you were working at Merseyside, it was an industry. It was everything. Well, we won't talk about Hold Your Plums here. Let's say that. But it was an industry. You were selling kits that you couldn't get. Uh, you were selling concerts. And it was a different world, wasn't it? How did that happen? Did that well, just sneak up? It was just... Obviously, they were doing that at City, so I'd learnt a bit from City. I realised that... I mean, I realised early in my radio career, you can't just be a voice, you've got to get out there. So I probably did more knocking pennies over, more presenting prizes, more judging competitions than anybody, and all for free. That's because I was getting your face out 
but where your voice was, because you couldn't just be a voice, you had to be a face as well. So I did all that. So when I come back with the experience that I had City as well, I told Maisie, I said, listen, we've got to, we've got to tell, because the figures weren't brilliant then. And I said, we've got to tell the people out there who we are. You know, we've got to get out there and meet the people who listen. So I started putting shows on, you know, say Radio Merseyside Presents at the Montrose or whatever it was, you know. And I started playing all the local acts. There's a great comedian. And you get them in. Or, or, or I'd get somebody who had a, I knew I'd have, had a really good record out that I knew my audience would love. And I'd play it to death. And then we put them on the floor and sell it out. You understand what I mean? And all the money, all the money went to Radio Merseyside Charity. So that was how, how, how it went in, in, in those years. And the bosses, they were great. It was working. They could see the figures were working, so they were happy with us. They never interfered. When when you were working on radio, were you, especially for the BBC, more so than... Because uh, Terry Smith took huge chances. Did you get any written warnings? Did you have any problems? No, the only, the only problem I had was, you probably well remember, is when I set Anfield on fire. That was the only problem I had on April Fool's Day when I announced that Anfield was on fire and all the fire engines were on the way there now and... The, the, the point was, I was going to say, you know, Anfield's on fire, play a couple of records and then say, I'm awful sorry, it was Tommy Smith's underpants, it just looked like Anfield was on fire. But that, by that time it was too late, the fire engines had gone down there, and there was Evertonians going down there as well and applauding it, you know. So the headlines in the Echo the next day were, what a silly Billy. Because Radio City had a good link with the Echo in these days, and they would have loved to get me sacked, Yeah, you know. Uh, and so I got pulled up over that, but n- not much really after that, except I was banned from going on the radio on April Fool's Day. <laughs> well, of course, Kev Seed, uh, he did one which was terrible. He did um, um, something about steps. Uh, oh, the steps were outside City, and of course thousands of kids came down. It wasn't, he was talking about the steps outside City. Well, he got into big trouble over that. Well, I beat him to that, actually. Because oh, right. oh, I right. got into trouble when I announced the Carpenters were at the Wookiee all, all next week. <laughs> and they were building a new stage. Because <laughs> Terry Phil, Phillips phoned me and said, What's all this about the Carpenters being on here? I said, Well, you're getting a new stage done. He said, People are phoning us up to book a ticket. <laughs> And I also announced one Christmas that uh, um, the big toy at that Christmas was the $6 million man. Nobody could get it anywhere. So I announced that we had it in reception. Give us a ring if you want one. So people rang up and said, have you got the $6 million man? Yeah. How much is it? $6 million. <laughs> I got into trouble once and I played the request. That, Please play the request from my Billy. She said, yeah, she's a lovely person. She's just a little bit deaf. So I said, okay, this record is for <laughs> so we got this deaf organisation complain then that I was taking a mickey out of deaf people, you know. It's changed. We'll move forward as we're talking about that. I now say that I can't do a phone-in anymore. You couldn't get away with what you used to get away with, the same as me, could we? Not really. Different world. I don't think we were outlandish. We, we no, just, we weren't. But it's, you know, we, yeah. we, we just did things because we understood our audience. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I, I got, when, when beer went up, I said, we can't take this anymore. We're fed up with the brewers being so greedy, you know. I said, I, I'm, I'm cutting out the ale now. I'm not going to be drinking anymore. So, of course, the press come down, take pictures of me with pints of water in the pubs and everything like that, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd be going on about the pubs and the pubs would be backing up and complaining. I used to read stolen car notices out. And I noticed that most of the stolen car notices were Ford's. So I used to say, and here's another Ford's takeaway car. The number is of that, you see. So, they, But they're only little things. 
You know what I mean? Did these all develop, because you were just a music jock at the beginning, did this develop with your show? Yeah, because my show was always me. It's as simple as that. And it was me because I was an, uh, an ordinary and member of the public. I was, what did I used to call him? Uh, I, I was of the most common, the, the most, least, I was of the most common, there was more of me's in Liverpool and my upbringing yeah. than anywhere else. So, yeah. so I was talking to an audience I knew. You see, so when you, when you did something, you knew you were talking their language. Yeah. Well, you know, in those yeah. days, Peter, your mail used to come in sacks. Oh, yes, absolutely incredible. It's, I was I mean, sacks, I said, by the way. Yeah. yeah. I mean, letters. Have I had one yet? No, I haven't had one here. No. Um, letters, yeah. It, it, was a, it was a different world. Um, while, while this was going on, were you doing television? Oh, yeah, I did quite a lot of television. Uh, I did, um, and did that find you, or did you look for that? That found me, actually. They said they're doing a show called The Maisie Pirates, and uh, they, I auditioned for that, and I got a job there on, on the board as uh, the, the match that I've said. I organised the, uh, the, the entertainment for the crew. Uh, Dougie Brown was the presenter, and we did it live from the Royal Iris every Saturday morning. And that was the first appearance ever on telly of Scully and Mooey. Because they were the stowaways on the show. Right. And we have guests like Frank Carson and uh, pop music guests who'd have to get the boat out to the... Uh, have to get the ferry out to the... have to get a trawler or whatever it was out to the ship to do the... the and that only ran for six weeks because they went on strike, actually, because with it being live on, from the Royal Iris, they couldn't have a massive camera on there that you pushed around. So they had the shoulder-held ones. And that was the first time they'd been used... So the unions complained because you're doing a man out of work because when you were on the big one, you had to get pushed. So the handheld cameras were putting the man out of work. So they went on strike. And by the time they come back, our 12-week run was over, you know, because we, we were off for six weeks, that strike. And, and then after that, I think, I, I, I got offered the job of doing What's On from Live On 2, from Granada. I used to come on and do the what's-ons of a Thursday night for about 10 or 15 minutes around the area and stuff like that, you know. And then I got offered this, uh, this job with uh, Bill Oddy uh, doing a show called Facts. And that was when we went... Uh, people would write in and say, how, how did this happen and, and why is this called that? And what I did, I went round, I went round different cities like Bristol, Belfast, um, Glasgow uh, in this ridiculous coat asking stupid questions like, um, complete this song, Gilly Gilly Awesome Pfeffer, and we'd stop, public, stop people in the public, you know, to finish the song. You know, and what did the, what, well, the giant went, fee fi fo fum, and what did he say after that? Yeah, daft things like that, you know what I mean? <laughs> the, but what did stand out, if we never got funny answers, right, before they edited it, I'd come back to Liverpool. So if they couldn't find a funny answer in the city, they had to do it in, the city, in different cities yeah, just yeah. to show it was a nationwide show, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, so, but if they didn't get what they wanted and it wasn't a punchline to come out, you go back to Liverpool and you always got a funny line off them. If you enjoyed Billy Butler, remember next week we have another podcast. It's in two parts. But why not subscribe? It's free. Liverpool Live.